2: another episode of the good music podcast i'm lucas i'm grant and i'm ethan and if it's your first time listening we'd like to welcome you here's what you need to know thing number one if you like what you hear subscribe to the podcast so you'll always know whenever it comes out and follow us on social media on instagram and facebook and you can comment or dm us on any bands that you want to hear but if you've been here if you've been a loyal supporter of the podcast for a while you can leave a review and talk about how much you love us and you know how great we are at music and how much you love it um and you can go to patreon and and donate to us on patreon there you'll get the episodes early and you'll get special access to our after hours segment and the link for that is in the episode description but lucas who are we talking about today
0: we are going to be um going into brand new territory with this episode uh we've kind of been like slowly making our way there in our history of music series and once we get there we're going to be spending a good amount of time but we are going to be talking about our first uh composer this episode we're going to be talking about my personal favorite composer and that is ludwig von beethoven Really switching it up here from the usual. Yes. Um, you know, this isn't the uh, the good rock music podcast <laughs> or the good modern music podcast. It's just the good music podcast. That means that it doesn't matter when it was made or what style it's in. As long as it is good,
2: we're going to talk about it. It's and... how how many people like kind of disqualify classical music uh, whenever like Beethoven was such a huge um, influence on music as a whole. But, oh yeah. Since we have so many genres now, like people will just skip over him.
0: Yeah. There's, there's kind of this weird um stigma on classical music to where, um, like, you, if people say that they listen to m- classical music, it's almost like considered lame,
1: or it sounds very you know, pretentious. Like, uh, it sounds like you're trying to like yeah. impress people.
0: Yeah, you 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 tell people you listen to classical music, it's just like, ugh, what a nerd. Or, you know, it's it's not considered to be very popular, or. You know, like old lame people listen to classical music. Yeah. You know, you can't like modern music and classical music at the same time. Classical music is boring, it's outdated, it's all this and that. Well, and I think classical music uh,
2: represents kind of like in, in my head, like I'm not, I'm not like a big metal or like heavy person, but like in my brain, like that genre, like stignifies like more of a mood and I feel like classical music kind of just has a mood associated to it that a lot of people like don't don't want to explore mm-hmm. yeah it's
0: uh it's interesting because you're gonna have kind of like two types of classical music listeners um you're gonna have people that like to have it on just for background music something to kind of uh, turn your brain off to or you're going to have the people that are like intensely listening for like all of the different nuances that are going on um, but I mean it's just you know it's not music that you're going to be singing along to or um I mean yes you do have hummable melodies but like not like in the way that you're going to be you know walking down the street humming you know a a frederick chopin piano nocturne it's it's not it doesn't have the same um, appeal in the way that like you know short concise three minute pop songs or rock songs do it's um, it's a little more I guess intimidating in a way Mm -hmm. if you're gonna like sit down and seriously listen Mm -hmm. to this style of music Mm -hmm you kind of can't um expect any well i won't say not any but you can't expect much instant gratification
1: i will say that you're you're very much correct about that um like two types of listeners things and i noticed that when i was listening to the songs for this episode because it it was after Jimi hendrix songs right that was last week and um so I'd always let it run from all along the watchtower into our first song. you know, while I was doing work or whatever and the way that they record this type of music is it's, it's basically they'll just stick a couple mics in the room and have the entire yeah. orchestra play or whatever. And there's not a lot of mm-hmm. mixing like there is with music today. And so things aren't made to stand out or like have certain extra frequencies or, eq'd a certain way or compressed a certain way and so it sounds very natural and so your ears can even though the music itself can be very complex and very quick and very frantic and whatever your brain isn't preoccupied with trying to listen to all the weird frequencies and so you can have like our ninth song or sorry our sixth song which you know is his ninth symphony i just gave it away but
3: um oh man
1: (laughs) you just ruined it well i'm sure the the listeners have already listened to the songs anyway but
0: um yeah it's very possible they
1: have but uh if if you listen to parts of that song they're very intense and a lot of our other songs too are very frantic and intense but it's not gonna like take your attention from something unless you want it to it's it's kind of in a way that that you experience about as much as you really want to like the intention you give is the satisfaction you get and that's very mm-hmm. rare in a lot of different kinds of music usually you'll have to choose a song for that instead of the song almost kind of like choosing you in a weird way
2: yeah I would say, we're, yeah, it's, we're in like a. I feel like we're kind of in a. I I guess I can't say classical music. I think that we're in an orchestral music renaissance right now because of the popularity of music scores. Like I, yeah, I hear a lot. It's kind of the place where I hear a lot of people where it talking about how X Y Z movie scores so like Interstellar or like. I mean Avengers has some great scores like it's more popular and just talking about more like movie scoring where orchestral music has survived I I got to talk to a couple of classical musicians a while ago about kind of their gig economy uh and it's like session players that are like tubaists like it's like yeah it's like all the recording sessions are for scores or you're playing in the symphony orchestra or like anything that's not that i mean trumpet has jazz like the kind of the you have like trumpet trombone saxophone the brass which are jazz jazz but like everything else is like yeah if you're not on the symphony orchestra if you're not landing gigs with any of like the top Twenty composers, like you're going to be hungry, right? Yeah, or you're going to end up in
1: like an Adam Neely video yeah. or Jacob Pollier <laughs> video, yeah, yeah. Or you're so awesome. good and
2: eclectic, like you, you're super specialized in in uh, the the right. vein of jazz that I love, which is right. weird jazz. But
1: and and supposedly Randy Rose was also classically trained, but he was playing metal. You know, and so, but but also he took a lot of you know classical like Mozart esque um, ideas into the metal realm, and that kind of birthed the whole neoclassical movement. Whether he intended to do that or not, that's kind of where mm-hmm. where it originated, and so that's kind of where we see metal where it is today, and that's that's the reason why we have songs like you know twenty one twelve and is because of Obviously Randy Rhodes was after twenty one twelve, but because of uh people like uh Rush and Randy and guys like Steve Vai and whatever who are looking back way back into music and finding really great compositions and really great musical ideas from people like Beethoven.
0: Well, think of it. We would we wouldn't have Bohemian Rhapsody without all this, right? Stuff.
2: That's that's true too. Because that's what that's that's what all that was based off of. And that's why <laughs> it goes back to classical music. I feel like symbolizing like a mood, because like in metal, you can kind of pull out like an introspective but still technically advanced moment in your song. And classical music kind of does that. It's it, it's a good way to still be technically adept without being as like, and it gives it a different mood other than like heavy.
3: Hmm. Mm.
0: Which there are some surprisingly heavy uh, classical compositions I have found as my uh, as I've done my research.
1: Not going to make you headbang really, but emotionally heavy.
0: No, yeah, and just and also really dark. Um. But real quick, let's let's talk a bit about of a qualifier. So we're going to be using and talking about how to use the term classical correctly real quick. Because when people say classical music, they tend to mean anything that's played by an orchestra and is old. Mm-hmm. I mean, because obviously, you know, we have film scores that are played by orchestras today, but people don't call that classical music. But if if it's played by an orchestra and it's old, no matter what time period it's in, as long as it's like considered to be like before, you know, modern music, then they just call it classical music, and that's actually incorrect a lot of the time.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, um, Beethoven is classical music because he falls into a very specific time frame—the classical period. In fact. He actually is the bridge between the classical period and the period that comes after, which is the romantic period.
2: So So he started the genre. Yeah.
0: He was kind of in really Yeah, and really he's actually kind of a rarity in that aspect. A lot of times you don't have composers back in those days, like when we would have these these changes of styles, it tended to be that once the master of that period passed away, that everything just would change. You wouldn't have an artist that would grow and evolve in that sort of way until Beethoven. Because when Beethoven starts his career, the classical period is still going, but he actually rebels against the classical forms and the classical ideals and strives for what he wants to do, and pretty much creates the Romantic period out of that. So give me some, which give me some more context can... on
2: that. I guess set up the classical period for me.
0: Yeah. So um, the classical period is um, from about seventeen fifty to eighteen. It's... Probably ten. Somewhere around, somewhere around. I know it's for sure starts in 1750 because that's the mm-hmm. year that Johann Sebastian Bach dies, which was the he was the master of the Baroque period, which is the period that comes before the classical. And once we get to the classical period, your main co- composer there is Mozart. Okay. So if you if you want to have a good idea of what classical music sounds like. Mozart, I mean, I'm sure you all can um, conjure up the famous melodies that he's written over the years. Classical music is built upon very accessible sing-along melodies, um, a very concise and streamlined melody and lots of controlled yet varied dynamics. It's, it's almost clinical in the way that it um, delivers its melodies. There's not a lot of messing around. There's not a lot of intense musical exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much you just, it's almost like it's a, it's a pop era of, of orchestral music.
1: So Mozart was, a, was Where, a pop star.
0: Absolutely. He was a pop songwriter. It's the reason why the the Beatles were compared to him. He was considered um, both, until the Beatles came along no one had written more enduring melodies than Mozart had. <laughs> because he's just, he was the kind of guy that just, he knew how to write a great hook. And that's a lot of what um, classical music oh. was now. Of course, you know, to say that there was no experimentation would be false, but it was not the
2: norm at all. So would were so Beethoven and Mozart were alive at the same time? Did, yes, did but they, oh, oh, I was gonna say, like, did they have like beef?
0: Well, I would say that as Beethoven's career was starting to get going when Beethoven was in his twenties in the in the late. 1700 so in the 1790s, that's when Mozart died,
3: hmm.
0: and so there was about there was probably like a, a six or seven year overlap between the end of Mozart's career, and the beginning of Beethoven's, and so there and he and he absolutely studied and learned how to play under the classical um,
1: modes. Yeah, I can
3: see so, what you,
0: you know.
1: He, w- I can see what you mean by like rebel because talking about how the classical music is very like pop and very kind of uh, formulaic a lot Mm -hmm. of the songs on this list are not formulaic and there's a lot of weird dynamics and a lot of weird chords and things are jumping out of scale and being in different scale and changing you know time signature for an entire section of the song And stuff like that is Mm -hmm. not stuff that you see in pop today, but it's stuff that you see in the really weird extreme stuff today.
0: Yeah. You could say that really he had a hand in uh, really making music experimental. I like like Um, him. Because he, man, Beethoven is an interesting man. He was a rebel through and through. He really was almost in the way that um Mozart was a pop star, Beethoven was like a rock star. He was anti-establishment, <clears throat> he was anti-religion, he was anti-anything that has authority uh ruling over
2: anything. Society. So Beethoven like is the rage, against yeah. pistols, man. Beethoven is the rage against the machine. Oh yeah, that's true.
0: Yeah, he was almost like a he was
2: a, he was almost like a punk in in personality. I mean, some, although he was not a punk in music, so, so he like give me some exa- like do we have any like known examples of him like this personality kind of showing up in his life?
0: Yeah, so he um, first off the way that he kept himself, he lo- always looked like he was a wild man. He never would um, conform to the uh, to the fashion um, styles of that time. Like he always kept his hair very unkept. He always it was always said that he smelled bad. Um, he obviously was very cut off socially because of his um, increasing hearing loss as he got older, and he was just a uh, he would have these outbursts in public where he would just go on these rants and by the way he is a he is german ludwig von beethoven so you can imagine a man um shouting in german in the middle of a dinner party
3: <laughs>
0: and about how intense that would be <laughs> um and he was just a renegade composer and because of that it kind of took him a while for his work to start to be recognized and admired it was about probably halfway through his career that which is probably about a 30 year career um about halfway through it he really is when he really started to gain critical acclaim and become adored by the mass public when
2: did he start like playing piano like what's his origin story before we get into his breakout success as far as like when he started playing or when he started composing like when did he start like what was his home life like 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 when did he start actually playing the piano when was his first composition so he and this is i'm find
0: that even back in this day this is almost like the archetype for the, the tortured genius he had a very abusive home life abusive father a mother that wasn't around and um, he took piano playing when he was like five or six so, and went to the Vienna school of music which was Vienna was like the capital of the music world the Western music world, at least, you know, that's where, that's where Mozart and Haydn were, which Mozart and Haydn were kind of like the, the idols of that time. And cause they were, they were the masters of the classical form. I mean, Haydn's pretty much the guy that invented the symphony. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, Mozart was just, you know, um, was becoming such a legendary figure at that time. And the piano was a fairly new instrument at, at about this time. The classical period is the first musical period where the piano is starting to be regularly used mm-hmm. because um, its predecessor was the harpsichord. Yeah. And the, harp- the harpsichord was a key instrument of the Baroque period. So that was kind of like the the go-to keyboard instrument. And it was around the classical period that it wasn't; it hadn't become the dominant instrument yet, but it was starting to be used more and more. Specifically, um, especially Mozart really started to popularize the uh, the piano sonata, and kind of was the first to explore really the extent of what that instrument was capable. of.
1: Yeah, I'm I. Do have to add. I don't know if you were intending on adding this, but the the reason they do call it the piano, and the reason why it became so popular, was because piano is is a uh, expression of like how intense you play a note, right? It's a musical expression.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a dynamic.
1: And um, the harpsichord key. would play the strings by plucking them, and so you can play the key mm-hmm. very intensely and it will be just as loud as if you barely touch it and so composers loved being able to change the dynamics of the instrument just on a whim and Mm -hmm. so it was so easy to compose with and we take it for granted now because a lot of our instruments today are very uh, percussive based um, especially the piano I mean a lot of musicians today know the piano very well and we kind of take that idea for granted that we can we can play soft and play loud but that was a big deal and so of course it would explode as we go into the classical era.
0: yeah you're absolutely right um the the fact that you had so much more um possibilities with the piano made it such a big instrument of that time but um the early pianos were not near as um expressive and didn't have the same capabilities that the pianos we have now or even the pianos that Beethoven would eventually use. Um, they were very much still being intensely um, prototyped and experimented on to try and perfect it. Funny. it was still it was almost like a, it was like it was like a brand new toy in the classical period. And it was in, it's in the Romantic period that the piano becomes finally the thing that it is now. I feel like
2: that's how, yes, that's how you the know, early. That's how you know if you're a breakout success. Like we had Van Halen, who like people are experimenting with pedals and stuff, and the Beatles, you have people experimenting with sounds, and then it's like you have Mozart, who people are—he's probably commissioning pianos being experimented and built for him, so. You're not a breakout success until people are building instruments for you that have never existed.
3: <laughs> Apparently.
2: Yeah. So, um,
0: yeah, he, um, he really was starting to, um, to introduce what the piano could do, but it still had a lot of limitations. It was not as near as ex- uh, expressive as it needed to be. And so it was almost, in Mozart's time, while the piano was cool, it was not seen yet as, like, the instrument of the future. It was almost kind of like, uh, you know, the same way that the harpsichord was just like, oh, this is a nifty instrument, but we'll probably outgrow it soon. And it was really Beethoven that kind of, like... Really showed what the piano was fully capable, do you think of.
2: Beethoven In my had my opinion like a sixth sense of knowing that the piano was the the future, yes, because a lot of his
0: compositions, the way that he scored them and write them, he wrote them for pianos that didn't even exist yet you you could not co- accurately and completely play his compositions with the pianos that existed at that time. If you did, they either would not sound right or you would destroy them. (laughs) Because he would require you to hit the pianos so hard at certain times and with such fury that the pianos at that time couldn't withstand it. (laughs) But pianos that came very soon after his death could. And so he was in a way very much projecting what um where pianos were going to go and and realized how important they were going to be a very large part of his legacy probably more so than than any other comp- composer of his time was relying on the piano now of course you would have composers that came after him that would almost completely devote their um compositional work to the piano like uh, frederick chopin uh like 95 percent of all of his works and he's a, one of the legendary composers 95 percent of them are piano only but as far as in the classical period and into the early romantic period um beethoven was kind of the only one to really devote that much time to the piano
2: so after he gets done at pretty much music school like what does he do
0: so at that time you musicians were didn't just make music because they wanted to you wouldn't it's not like um, I guess you could say in a way that a, a band today gets a record contract before they can start making records yeah. which of course really isn't that much now because everyone just makes records at home um, But, like, you could kind of think in the way of, like, back in the day, in the 60s, 70s, you know, you're not going to get your music heard unless you are contracted. Mm-hmm. And that was the same with classical composers. Pretty much members of either the royalty or the aristocracy, people that either ruled or had, you know, giraffe money, <laughs> um, would commission you and say you know we want you to write you know x y and z number of pieces of music for to play for you know the upper class so
3: those like was like, so, you
0: like know,
2: a play would be commissioned yes so like
0: composers didn't wouldn't just like go home make music and then you know go to a theater and say hey i wrote a bunch of new music we're going to schedule performance because like the middle and lower classes didn't get to go see a lot of these performances this was something that was reserved for high society Uh, at least the the initial debut by the composer himself was that just
1: eventually was it just the way it was or like was that like a cost thing no it was just like
0: music was especially in this time music was seen as this sophisticated thing and so they they felt that only sophisticated people could appreciate it and of course you know as after it would premiere and if it was considered a success then you know hand me down copies would be would trickle down through society but you know your ordinary person working a day-to-day job would not get to go see beethoven premiere his new music what, what
1: do you mean copies
0: uh the sheet music okay so you know obviously you know eventually the sheet music would make its way make its rounds throughout because he would publish the work after
2: it's so, been debuted um question the so do you think that a reason why these composers have so much music like is because they just keep being commissioned to make new music so they're just writing all the time yeah, instead of and... it just being like oh beethoven's a genius because like nowadays it's like if someone's releasing a lot of albums it's just like they're a freaking genius because they're just releasing it because they can these guys were releasing it because they mm-hmm. had to
0: yeah, and I mean, obviously, though the the better you are, right. the more they're going to ask you to compose. If you're if you're a terrible composer, you're you're not going to yeah. get asked too many times. So, in a way, yes, the the amount of work you have uh, shows how good of a composer you were and how much of a genius yeah. you were. But yeah, he's not just he's not just sitting at home and whenever the muse strikes him, he writes down like he. You know, he's gotta be commissioned to make the work first.
3: Hmm.
0: So um well see so yeah, that was that was kind of the mode and so what would happen was is you would have and you'll see the on all of these um on all these musical pieces we're gonna be talking about, that you're gonna have this word opus at the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not at the beginning, but in the, uh, it is in the, well, it'll say OP dot. Yeah. Like it'll say OP 67 or OP 13. What that means is Opus. That's almost kind of like that equivalent of an album back then. Obviously, it wasn't ever recorded and put it onto, you know, there weren't records or CDs back then. But Opus would just be kind of like a collection. Whenever, a composer would debut something, they wouldn't just debut one piece. They usually had like six or seven pieces oh. ready to perform. And they would usually be all so different like kinds a live of album. music. Like, yeah, in a way. And so all of those things that he would debut would be opus whatever. And it would be, you know, the first one he'd do opus one, then opus two, then opus three, and so on and so forth. So... By the time we get to um, his final composition, which is Symphony Number no. Nine, that's
2: Opus One Hundred and Twenty Five, <laughs> and Opus that would just mean Opus would signify how many collection commissions he got.
0: Yes, so you know Opus is just a collection. Sometimes the Opuses would be small. You know, you could just yeah. have maybe three things in an Opus, or you could have as many as eight yeah. or nine. So, like for instance, when he debuts his Symphony Number no. Five, he's also debuting Symphony Number no. Four in the same thing, in the same concert, as well as like five other shorter. Do pieces. we have all of
2: hmm. his opuses? Yes, I it's believe so. It's pronounced opie. All of his opie. Opie. <laughs> all of his opie. Oh my
3: we are There's sophisticated just men
1: opus <laughs> oh,
0: so um so yeah that's 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 what you would i guess you call the the album of that time is the opus
2: wow um so that 125 so that compared to mozart so how much how many how many opai did Mozart have? Oh, I actually do not know because I have not done that research.
0: And the only reason I, c- I can tell you the Beethoven's off the top of head is because it's famously known that the Symphony No. 9 yeah. was his final work. And I have it pulled up right here so I can A just look at internet.
1: it. So mm-hmm. that, that being opus 125, that would mean he had had 125 performances. At
2: least. At least yes. 125 performances. Debut performance. 125 commissioned works. So, debut performances. Were the,
3: were,
2: I guess, what would those
1: commissioned works look like? Would it just be like somebody pays him to just like write a song, or it's like, oh, write a song about... No, they
0: wouldn't that really wouldn't happen as far as write a song about unless you were writing an opera, you had to, um, they would typically give you a storyline to Mm -hmm. work with, which which was called a libretto. Um, and you know, they would, especially if it was going to be something with words in it, they, it typically had to be checked before it was debuted to make sure it wasn't scandalous or, um, unseemly. But for the most part, it was just kind of like, hey, you know, write what you want. And they're, you know, they're going to trust your reputation that you're going to play something that the people are going to enjoy. And so, you know, there were times that, you know, they will write songs that they know are going to be big hits with the public. And so, like, you kind of have your, like, your commercial songs that you would write. Something that you know is going to be sold to all these different, you know, piano players at dinner parties. They're going to buy your sheet music for that popular piece because everyone's going to want to hear them play it. And then you also can sneak into their opus along with your your hit song, you can sneak something in there that's more experimental, something that you want to write. Mm-hmm. Something that's going to further the art of music in of itself. And then so it's it's, it's yeah, just like an album. You
2: have your deep cuts, and you have your and, and you, you have, have your, your big record hits. label that's commissioning the work that wants your big hit, that wants a big hit. But funny.
1: So mm-hmm. how does the uh, an analogous record label in this case? How does the commissioner get their cut back?
0: Well, it's going to be through. Um, uh, like it's pretty much almost more like a uh, the owner of a venue. The more people come see your work, then the better you're gonna you're gonna be. And it's just almost like you're gonna. Um, the more reputable your composer becomes that you have in your employment, the more people are gonna pay to come see. Ah, you.
1: okay, okay.
0: Because. You know, when Beethoven becomes the biggest composer in the world in the early 1800s, you bet that they're probably, they can probably jack the prices up for people to come see him because they know he's. So it's, it's like
1: it's like paying your cover band to play at your bar, like.
0: Okay.
2: Uh huh. The um,
1: I I had pictured just somebody you, was paying Beethoven because it's like oh I want to support the arts so much I'm gonna give you a million dollars, but okay I get it. No,
0: it was all about furthering the status and the renown of
2: the, yeah, the It feels
3: like, because again, like I said,
2: like the same as like, oh, I'm in my palace and I'm having a party and so I'm going to have this drama, like this play thing come to entertain everyone, but Mm -hmm. I want it to be original because I'm rich and so I'm going to pay for someone to write a play.
0: Yeah, it's like the mo. Most of the time, the people that are commissioning these works are dukes and uh, princes and kings and duchesses, and you know, it's not just your normal guy. Even if that guy has a lot of money, I mean, like I said, you got to have giraffe money to be able to to be on this level to just commission Beethoven to. Speaking of giraffe money,
2: how much? A lot of know. How much Beethoven would get paid per opus, like is...
0: No, but I do know that he did not have a lot of money at the end of his life, whether that was irresponsibility on his part or because Beethoven was a bit different because again, this was a bit of the time when the t- when it was changing. Because back in the day, in the Baroque period for sure, and into the Classical period as well, um, a lot of times they would get – the composers would get steady jobs as being like this person's official court composer. And so like it was almost like a full-time job. He would be put on a yeah. in a way of, you know, you're not going to write music for anyone except for me. You know, like – um, Bach is my guy he's gonna he he lives in my palace, and he just i just have him write all day every day and that's his job hmm. and so people like that lived very comfortable lives, mm-hmm. but Beethoven was not in that position. he did not um play for any one person. Mm-hmm. Uh, consistently, He was kind of more like whoever, highest bidder, you know, he was bouncing around to different people. And the way we know that is all the different counts and countesses and barons and dukes that he uh, has dedicated all of his pieces to. Because everything that he's written is dedicated to someone. Of course, you know, you read that name and we today have no idea who they are, but... <laughs> I mean, as in, like, if you're knowledgeable, you know, but it's not like anyone famous that if I were to say, oh, Symphony Number no. 5 is dedicated to this person," we'd be like, oh, my gosh. I would say the name, and you'd be like, who?
1: Mike Gross from com. Yeah.
3: <laughs> sure. But they
1: have been immortalized.
0: Yes, and, you know, even if um, Beethoven maybe did not have the riches at the time in his life, I mean, he is, I would say, like, equal standing just about with Mozart and Bach, who are the kind of – they kind of form like the holy trinity of um, orchestral composers. Mm Mm-hmm. Those are like kind of the three names that even the lay person that maybe couldn't even tell you any of their works will say that they know who they are or claim. He is, he is absolutely one of the most revered, one of the most respected and most um, played musicians to ever walk this earth.
1: That is true.
0: And in my, in my opinion, he's, he might also be the most brilliant piano composer of all time
1: that I will have to agree with knowing what I know or hearing what I have heard about the or from the songs that we'll talk about in the next Mm segment there's some really intense stuff that a lot of people have tried to transcribe to the guitar and you can do it but it's it's intense it's crazy crazy fast stuff that for just for a new instrument given not a new like uh keyboard style right because the harpsichord and organs have had that for years and years hundreds of years at that point um but for such a new instrument being able to compose well and then also being super super proficient in it it's very rare
0: yeah and you know kind of the icing on the cake being the fact that he was uh, going deaf throughout a lot of the time that he was writing his most
1: famous compositions (laughs) maybe I should go deaf and then my music will get better (laughs) <laughs> there was a the, Now the- did, I, did you watch the um any movies about Beethoven cuz I do remember watching in um one of my middle school classes we had to study all our composers and uh, we watched a movie about Beethoven and his life and it kind of jumped around through time and whatever and it was kind of one of the scenes it was towards the end of his life and he was writing the the main theme for his Um, Ninth Symphony and he had some people in like someone's house and he was trying to tell the sopranos what note to hit and he was completely deaf at that point or as deaf as he was going to be and they were saying you know you're deaf that's an imperfect note you're hitting the wrong note he's like the notes are not imperfect it's your voices that are imperfect and he stormed out of the room and so you saying that Beethoven was an abrasive person like
3: yeah at times
0: yeah I I don't know if I can specifically say that that story is accurate but that's absolutely something that he would do
1: okay he
0: he was so easily irritated he um, was very volatile very um, emotionally abusive but at the same time, you know, this is someone that is literally losing um, their hearing, which is almost seems insane for someone to be in the music mm-hmm. profession. Uh, he he had long periods of his life where he was in deep, almost suicidal depressions because of his hearing loss, and am, among other things as well. The rip, the the. Trickle effect of of the frustration of losing your hearing affected many other aspects of his life as well. But you know he was very he was very angry man. He was very um, down on himself, but yet composing what was was what always like brought him through, and what kind of kept him going. And the fact that he could write – because really, most scholars would admit that his music got better as he got deafer, even if deafer is actually a word, um, more more deaf. But, I mean, it's just – it's amazing because that means that just like it was all in his head. He knew exactly what he wanted. He knew exactly how to – how to write what he wanted. And it is possible that we may have some of his crazy experimental aspects from the fact that it could be (laughs) just he couldn't hear to see if it sounded as, as weird as it did. But nevertheless, you know, it worked because the music has endured past his life
1: you know the way you've been describing his personality apart from the hearing loss it kind of reminds me of like axel rose where like he's so big into being expressive and being musical but also kind of like abrasive and kind of a narcissist but also very like depressed a lot it it kind of he is kind of a rock star he kind of has the like the the 80s 90s rock star like horror story going on of like you 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 have you know the narcissism as well as the depression as well as the the expressiveness and the abrasiveness and all of the bad things and all the good things that come with it
0: yeah so I I think that it's very interesting, especially coming to him after doing all of these modern Mm -hmm. groups. We almost kind of like look backwards at these guys and almost not see them as real people or not at all like the people that we know and we are familiar with. But they are, you know, people are – to say that people haven't changed is maybe a, a bit of an oversimplification, yeah. but you get what I'm saying. Like, at the end of the day, he's still a person, and people are people. And I think it's interesting to kind of just see the man behind the myth. Someone just like Jimi Hendrix talking about in our previous episode, someone that's almost been myth, mytho- mythologicalized, whatever the word is. I'm struggling with my words tonight mythologized so much that it's almost impossible to to conceive of them as as a flesh and blood mm-hmm. person and i think that that's one of the most interesting parts of going back and seeing these older artists is is seeing who who were they mm
3: hmm mm-hmm
0: who were they as people and how does their music uh, inform us about who they were? I think what you see when you look at Beethoven is that he was a very, um, he was a very tortured, emotional yet at the end of the day, a very hopeful person because as weird and as dark as his music would get, there was always a light eventually he's written some of the most beautiful and most moving melodies of all time as well as some of the saddest and most melancholy melodies of all time
2: I think that listeners are gonna like that uh, I've never really dived into Beethoven will be surprised at how many songs that they know just because of culture hmm hmm
3: yep I, so I, I feel like, agree. Well, with I feel like that, we're going to get a lot of like oh
2: my gosh that was Beethoven oh my gosh that was yeah. Beethoven oh my gosh yeah. that
3: was Beethoven
2: and they're, they're just going to it's like some of the like Grant you've said this before where it's like we'll be listening to an artist and you're like I didn't know that was them I didn't know this was this right. but for Beethoven to have that much I mean that's a lot of star power to, to I mean transcend hundreds of years right and having been dead
1: for like Mm -hmm. almost 200 years yeah so with that I think we should get to the songs
0: yes so uh, when we come back to the next section we're going to be getting into the six songs that we've picked for this Beethoven episode so make sure you stay tuned we'll be right back
1: Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about Beethoven and his life and his influence as a composer and his crazy personality. And now it's time to talk about his crazy songs through the form of these six songs that we've selected for this segment of the podcast episode. So, for those of you who are new, first of all, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We hope you enjoy the episode. And you're probably confused as what we mean by six songs. So, Lucas, could you help him out?
0: Yes, I will. Thank you so much for asking. (laughs) Um, The six songs are the way for us to be able to start talking concretely about the artist. So, um, you know, we we finished kind of talking about the broad strokes of them as a person and as an artist in the first section. Now we get to kind of really see what that looks like in the music. As well as, this is a introduction for those of you that may not be familiar with beethoven's music or um are vaguely familiar and want to start to dig a little deeper these six songs provide your best first step into the audience into the artist so i'm not necessarily just picking what are my six favorite beethoven songs or what i think are the six objectively best beethoven songs Rather, I'm picking the six songs that will introduce you to him as a composer as well as structuring and ordering them in a way to where there is an emotional flow from start to finish that the songs transition well off each other and that they lead to an eventual catharsis moment at the end of the set. And so the way that you can listen to these songs is there is a link in the description of the episode where you can go to a Spotify playlist and hear not only the songs that are in this episode, but all the songs from our previous episodes as well. So make sure you go check those out. And I think we can go ahead and jump into the first song of the said. Now we're gonna this is gonna be a little bit different from previous episodes because we don't have these these cool little song titles. Although, they do have nicknames, but they're not included in the name of the song. So, you're going to hear these very dry names. It's just the way that it was done back then.
2: It's they they named their songs like you would name, like a computer file. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Again, a lot of these songs
0: have gained nicknames after the fact, but typically these nicknames were not used at the time, and certainly they were usually never given by the composer himself. So um, the first song in our set is Symphony Number no. Five, Movement
2: One. Dun 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 dun.
0: I think probably the,
2: m- most famous, the most famous. Yeah, it's
0: like I would say it is the most famous uh, orchestral.
2: Um, piece ever written. Think, I don't know. It, there's some other ones in here that are, that are. I mean, this one is orchestral sure though. Famous, but
0: dang. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, this is this is this is something that like just everyone uses on a day to day basis. If someone, you know, something dramatic happens, someone will go da 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 and probably an not even know what it is that they're quoting.
1: It, it's become an interjection
0: yeah that it's it's cartoons like tom and
2: jerry have like given us a better sense of beethoven
0: oh oh yeah of of classical music in general it's something i've noticed um after learning about all this stuff is uh all the old bugs bunny and all that that's like that's their score is is because it's unlicensed classical yeah (laughs) that's unlicensed guarantee that's why (laughs) they can use it you are 100% correct on that
1: mm-hmm. it it kind of reminds me of like this song in particular as well as other songs it kind of reminds me of like our opet episode in that like I'm sure you've seen the memes of like it's the guy dressed up in all the black metal stuff next to the girl dressed up as like a princess and they're both having ice cream and it's like to supposed to show a contrast and it's like that's kind of how opeth's music is like half the time it's like really nice and sweet and flowy and the other half it's like really intense that's what this song is yeah there's like some really like frenzied like evil almost like sinister moments in this song like particularly in the opening but i mean very quickly we even move like within the first 10 seconds we even move into a a portion that's kind of very legato and very kind of free flowing and and sort of subdued almost happy
0: yes before we continue with the discussion of the song there is something that's going to be important to know about the songs themselves in this set okay so if you notice i said that this is symphony number no. 5 movement 1 right all of well, except for one instance in this set, all of these songs are pieces of a larger whole. Um, they're 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 called movements, and uh, these larger like a symphony by rule until you know the romantic period decided to just bust all the rules <laughs> beethoven hadn't gotten to the point to where he was gonna stop doing four movements in a symphony but a symphony always had four movements and so these movements they're almost like individual songs and like the symphony would is more looked like as an album in a way hmm even in a a smaller sense of the way that like an opus is considered an album. Mm -hmm. Like you can see a symphony almost like a, I guess like, you know, the the modern version of those would be like your prog epics that have the Roman numerals next to the different sections. (laughs) Those are, they take that cue from symphonies. So, Um, And the movements, while they are distinct and can stand alone, actually do connect with each other and have melodies that continue throughout each. So it's not just – it's not four completely separate like they have nothing to do with each other. Now, of course, the key will change. The tempo will change. um, The form will change. But there are going to be little uh, continuancies throughout and that. so, typically, there's going to be a central theme that unites all of the movements. And in his Symphony Number no. Five, that da 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 dum, the it's what they refer to it as the three short, one long. That is the 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 theme that unites all four movements of this symphony together. Now, of course, they're. They never reference them in such blatant ways as to like have full reprisals in different movements, but like when you hear the opening of movement three, it's the same idea but just executed differently. So it's kind of like and a prog s- epic, exactly.
2: Like an octave, and so,
0: kind of uh huh. So I'm because of the fact that lis- putting entire symphonies and entire sonatas as one song would be super exhausting. That's, you know, symphonies in of themselves can be 25 to 30 minutes long. So um, I chose to use specific movements as individual songs because in a way they, that's what they are. Yeah. In the same way that um, a song in a concept record yes, is a piece of a larger whole and connects to the other pieces around it, but it's also meant to stand on its own as well. Otherwise, they wouldn't be divided into individual songs. It would just be one giant piece. That makes sense. And so when you hear me as I'm going to different um, um, songs in this episode... I'm just picking out specific movements. We're not going to hear any of these pieces in its entirety, except for, of course, one of them. One of them is just its own stand because he did write standalone songs as well. These are those are the shorter pieces that he would write, but the the specifically the symphonies and the sonatas, those are multi movement um, epics. So the.
1: Um... I guess kind of what I don't know how far we can really go with with this question. I always like to ask what the meaning of songs is, but like I guess kind of what mood was intended, like what part of the storyline maybe, what w- was this supposed to convey? So this is movement one. So this is the beginning of the of
0: right. Symphony Number Five. Right. So this is that the fact that you have that. Um, that very bold grabbing piece right at the beginning is, I think, very powerful. And the way that Beethoven has described it is that he says that that is supposed to be fate knocking at the door. It's why the symphony later on has gotten the nickname the Fate Symphony. And that short, 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 long motif has been giving been given the title of the fate
1: theme. Hmm. Duel of the fates.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It kind of does and... sound like that actually towards the towards the interlude, as when you get to um the brass section really opens up and the woodwinds kind of do their little um interjections that he likes to do. And we'll see that later in some of the um Uh, other songs in this set um, that he doesn't really he treats the woodwinds as accents which is really nice Um, but it gives it it gives us this feel of and maybe this is where we got it from of like a sci-fi score especially Mm -hmm. when it goes back to that fate theme and it, it plays it much slower but the brass is playing unison uh huh. When it does like... the big,
0: big dramatic, the bum, right. bum, bum, bum. It sounds.
1: Yeah. It sounds like dual fates. It sounds like Darth Maul just walked out and ignited his lightsaber. You know. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
1: It's it's crazy how much like you can hear our modern music in his music. Yeah. Um, the uh, the common
0: urban legend around this is that um he got the idea after hearing someone knock on the door go pop 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 and he was just like oh i'll make but that's not true that's just an urban legend that's Mm. rolled around but you know he is the one that was the one saying that it's meant to almost sound like a door knocking but it's a it's kind of the idea being that you don't want to know who's on the other side of it.
3: <laughs> oh my I gosh, guess, this is
1: like some metal stuff.
0: Yeah. In my opinion, because this came out in uh, 1804. Or sorry, it was written in 1804. Mm. And it was premiered in um In 1808, four years again. And again, at the it was at the same time as the sixth symphony. So the sixth and the fifth were um, debuted the same performance. And in my opinion, while it's it's hard to say when the Romantic period officially began because it's not like there's not like this defining moment where the classical period is done and the romantic period has begun there are other periods where it's much easier like you know we know the instant that the baroque period ended and the classical period began. it was when bach died that's always been used as the the point because of the fact that the romantic period was more of a natural growth into it rather than a sudden change it's hard to tell, but in my opinion, the Fifth Symphony is like the first great in composition of the Romantic period. It still has its roots firmly centered in the Classical period, like when it does that. That's that's such a classical line right there. It's very melodic, it's very um intentional in the way that the melody is moving, but then it also has these very um free like the um the part where it randomly breaks down to a I think it's a clarinet. Yeah. and it's just playing by itself. That was like a weird revolutionary thing to do in the middle of your symphony. And especially for it not to have be the prelude to a exploration section that it literally just comes in the middle and then the theme keeps going where it left off. It just shows that he was in this, he was starting to really see what rules he could break. And uh, when we get to his final symphony, the Symphony in an Arm, that's a no question, without a doubt, a full romantic composition really no classical elements to be found in it
1: that's really weird uh, that that you would say that that's a rule-breaking move because mm-hmm. we, we do that all the time in music have you know a single instrument take a section and then just go back to normal i mean that's essentially what a guitar solo is if you really break it down
0: well and here's the thing it's not that 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 having an instrument play solo was was strange. It was the way that it's played. Typically, if a solo is going to break into its own, it's going to be this virtuosic show of skill. And it's going to have its own development, its own motifs, and it's going to be a lengthy section. The fact that the clarinet plays this very simple melody and then it just continues business as usual after like 20 seconds. That's the part that's really uh, was really revolutionary at the time because the way that symphony movements were structured, there were rules. You have to do the, what they call the exposition. You introduce all your themes. The fact that, you know, everything all the way through um, the from the beginning to the part where the intro motif plays again, that first section, that's like the exposition right there. Then you have the reprisal where you do it again, and about halfway through that, that's when you start to do the exploratory section. This is the part where you start to uh, take all your themes that you've been using, which is when it does that, ba na na and it kind of starts to go into these different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's meant at this point now you've assumed that you've introduced most of your melodic structures you're going to be playing with now you start using them you expand them you start taking them in new directions and and building on them and then eventually you get to a point where you get to the recapitulation where you bring back the original uh, melodies but you're, of course, now playing them with a bit more um, flavor to them. And it's during the middle of this recapitulation that that clarinet section breaks down. And that's what's so strange about it, is that your exploratory is done. If you're going to put a section like that there, it's going to be in the middle part, not towards the end, when you should have all this momentum building to the final section of the movement, which is the coda hmm so there's a lot of kind of um very like almost legalistic things about the way that it's the it's the reason why why the classical period was the way it was is that it was dominated by rules and regulations and things having to be done a specific way there was a formula that was followed and the thing that was so revolutionary about Beethoven is that he was breaking away from the formula. He was he was saying that we don't need it. We can we can start to to um, to write our musical pieces whatever way we want to. In the name of musical expression, and I think that the Fifth Symphony is really good at being experimental while at the same time. Still, following the rules because it does follow the correct structure of what a, a symphony movement should be but it, it has a lot of really cool small subversions in them
1: so were, did the rules have to do anything with the and I think I know the answer to this did the rules have anything to do with staying within the same eight tone scale no okay, I mean I figured
0: tip- typically though, um dissonance was sparingly used. sorry if my dog just got in my ear <laughs> but we'll 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 just keep rolling um, dissonance was used we're we're not at a point where it's you know like how we're talking about in um in Gregorian chant where it's like so, so strict, but there were still a lot of uh, regulations. It was more having to do with structure and just making sure that everything sounded pleasant. You could have small moments of dissonance, but it typically was not prolonged. There weren't these long sections of building tension through dissonance. Mm -hmm. And you typically aren't writing these intensely melancholic or heavy pieces as well. For the most part, there's a lot of happiness and joy and energy or simple beauty and delicacy put into most classical music. You think of classical music as kind of almost just like triumphant music because a lot of the art in general of the classical period was, inspired by um, Greek mythology and these these heroes of old and um, kind of romanticizing the the past and just you know like this is music to show how great man is and the Romantic period is more about the the individual. The classical is almost more about the collective the unity of man while romantic music is more about the individuality of man. Hmm. Well, that's deep. Yeah.
1: Now there is something very special at the end of this song that I, I'm sure Ethan may have picked up on had he uh been listening close enough during our um uh, original Van Halen episode which you were on but but the uh first song was eruption right for our first Van Halen episode mm-hmm. and it ends with a uh transition between e minor and b major which is the notorious you know way of Uh, doing chords when you're in a harmonic minor scale this song is in harmonic minor and it ends the song the same way going from that root major to that five or the root minor to the five major and it has such a fast transition too that it kind of makes you think like i mean eddie van halen also is being influenced by ideas from beethoven And so it's just another instance of Beethoven having pervaded all places in music, whether we've known it or not. I'm sure that Eddie probably did it subconsciously, you know, because it was just a random take, you know, of him just soloing. (laughs) And so, but it was still on his mind it's just, I don't know. It's just something to think about.
0: Yeah, it, it very well could be. There's, you will be surprised by the number of musicians that held these composers in such high regard. Not just from like a, you know, oh, you know, from awareness, but like legitimately being fans of them and pulling hard on, Their influence of them. Mm -hmm. Um. So, Ethan, um,
2: kind of explain to me what, where the song took you. What were you noticing throughout this piece? Now, now that I'm listening to it with the ears of that, the bum, bum 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 is like thematic for fate. It changes it because whenever I would listen to it, there were always two competing themes. There was like the harsh theme, and then there was like the more flowy theme. And I always kind kind of looked at it as like a. It feels like a chase because it never feels like ominous. Like it never feels ominous. Like like like, horror. Like horror. Yeah, but it it, but it is like almost like a forebodingness about it. Mm
3: Hmm.
2: Um, my favorite part of the song is whenever it, it's like the flutes and stuff like it's like kind of even more to the end ish um, but yeah now listening to it I would say because there's times in the song where it's mm-hmm. happy and it plays the that that's still short 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 long you know where it's even like happy and so now it makes me think it, it's hard to say it's hard to to put too much intention to it, because I don't know how much of my own Western songwriting and modern thinking is like attributing intent to like, Oh, maybe the song was about, you know, it's like the first, like, bum, 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 is like, Oh, I'm like afraid of death. And then, cause the next part is, and that's still short, 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 long, you know technically yeah on the different instruments and the, but there it doesn't sound as foreboding so now it's almost like like even the bum 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 like that it's still short 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 long but it's just putting it through like this it sounds like an intense chase yeah. lens, almost like different ways to think about fate now that i'm looking at it but that might be me attributing too much intention to what is just meant to be a song that's using a theme over and over mhm yeah
0: and there's another thing that well I also we should pay attention to on the way that beethoven composes and for as complex and as experimental of a composer as he is, usually most of his compositions revolve around a very simple idea, like such and this being a pattern of short and long hits in a specific pattern. Yeah, yes, he goes crazy in going to all these different um, places for them, but the idea at the core of it is very simple. And that's going to be uh, one of the main things that pops up over and over again in his work is – and I'll see, uh, see if you can pick it out in the pieces that we're going to be looking at next – is you've got this simple idea expounded upon and turned into this entire big monstrous uh, piece. But at the core of it, you've got a simple idea. This this short 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 long is is not just the the driving motif of this movement, but of all four movements of the symphony of thirty plus minutes. The entire groundwork sits upon this simple musical idea, and that's very emblematic of a lot of his work. Hmm. Yeah. so I think that that's very interesting.
1: That's crazy. I could not think about yeah doing that for i just i it's almost like he, it it's like he it's like he has this simple idea or... and
0: it's like he challenges us just like, how can I make a piece based just off of this?
1: I mean, we've talked about that before. Artists mm-hmm. giving themselves limitations can sometimes. So we'll bring we'll out see if you guys pick up well ideas. I think
0: that we've uh, been in this song for quite a long time. I mean, we have we have had to we have to lay down a lot of groundwork yeah. again <laughs> in order to fully appreciate well, right, what's going up. on in these songs. <laughs> you do have to understand why things are the way they are, what the rules are. And all that, so you'll have to pardon kind of our long windedness in talking about uh, this first song because it's it's really setting the stage. I think that it's important that this first song is something that everybody knows. Yeah, it's something I that it's as a good soon way to as start you start, yeah, you as soon as those first notes come in, you know the song. I mean, you probably don't know what a lot of people don't know what comes after those first notes. But everyone's going to be hooked because they're just like, oh, I know that. I didn't know he did that. And so now we can start to move into uh, some of his piano pieces. And the first piano piece that we're going to look at is the third movement of his piano sonata number eight, which is called the Pathetique.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: The pathetic. Hmm. This this is definitely a change from the fifth symphony in that it is the only the piano. It's kind of toned down and it's comparatively normal. This is your, this is the Lucas stereotypical second song, (laughs) and that it's, that it's that. it's the least memorable song, but it serves a very particular purpose to well to to make that first song really kind of stand out but prepare you prepare your ears for the rest of the music and kind of build everything back up to where we were to start off with and i think that's what this set does so we go back to something very very simple and and this song i would say the pervading mm-hmm. there's a uh, whole bunch of trills. the
2: song there's a lot interest. of trills
1: that carry the melody everywhere
2: because there's no song meaning the pathetic is, is does that have anything to do with like pathetic yeah but pathetic back in that time doesn't mean what it means
0: now like we use <laughs> pathetic as a uh as a derogatory term like oh you're so pathetic but if someone were to say something was pathetic back then it just it means more of to incite emotion or pity um or just any kind of strong emotional reaction and so this piano sonata was just meant to be a um an emotion provoking um uh, piece so sonatas where symphonies typically have four movements, sonatas typically have three. Not always, but for the most part, they do. And so this is actually the final movement of the sonata. And I think that it's a, it's an interesting uh, way to hmm. end it. Now, this is actually probably the most um the most classical oriented Mm -hmm. of all of the works that we're going to see here because this was actually the only piece in this set that was written in the 1800s this i believe the date for this 1700 sorry um this was written i believe in 1797 so this was a little bit earlier in his career when he was, but but you can still feel the, the the tug that he has at pulling away from the classical periods. I mean, you can just hear it in some of the theory of some of the parts that he plays. While well, we have these, um, these sudden breaks, and um, you have these kind of these intense shifts, but. If this is this is what we would call a um, a theme and melody um, uh, reprisal. Theme and variation, yeah, that's the term I was looking for. And to where you have this main theme that plays the Yeah. And that's kind of, that's the theme that holds the whole song together. And um, as you go, you have these different experimental ventures that we go on. But then we always, we have like some kind of like dark, heavy piano chord that rings out for a little bit. And then we reset, go back to the main theme. And I really love whenever he puts... um, his works into these formats because it's like you, you start to expect it after a couple times through and you're just like, Oh, and then the last time when you really think you've got a hand over it at the very end, he, he switches it. You know, he does his little experimental exploration section And hits on that big note, and then you think he's gonna go one more time back into the theme, and instead he goes into the set. I think that that's a really great subversion.
2: Yeah. That's exactly what I was gonna point at in the song, darn you. Yeah, it's. You can expand on it if you'd like. Our sonata is (laughs) usually structured in that way or is this just a Beethoven um, exclusive thing
3: like
0: I don't think I'd be able to completely accurately say if everyone did that in that specific way but he was definitely doing things in a much more dramatic and um, a more shocking way mm-hmm. to where he's, he's using stronger emotions and conflicting the emotions more than your typical – like, say, Mozart. Mozart was really kind of the main person before Beethoven to really do piano sonatas. And his piano sonatas are very predictable and very straightforward. They, they almost like were um, – like, he, he would probably use it as, like, baby music. Yeah, like just like mm-hmm. you know, he it was the piano was still kind of more of a quaint instrument. Yes, it was starting to be mm-hmm. explored. It was starting to be used in serious compositions, but for the most part, like his piano sonatas are very light. They're very um, short. They're very um, melodic and straight to the point. And uh, Beethoven was more looking to see what he could explore with on the piano and his piano sonatas. And I think that even this early um, attempt at this, I think is, even though this is not as experimental as we'll eventually get to, I think that we're already starting to see some very interesting things being done as well as some very impressive piano playing. During a lot of the exploration segments. Yeah. So um, since Ethan, you are a piano mm-hmm. player, which we don't really get to talk about as much. Um, kind of, kind of talk to me about kind of what you're hearing technique wise and what's, what's going on on the, on the actual piano. It's what's, it's... what's catching your ear.
2: It's just a lot of, and again, I'm I'm I would not ever say that I am even classically trained on piano. Uh, the, um, I think from a compositional standpoint, I my favorite part of the song is like, it's almost like halfway to three fourths of the way through the song, it just kind of like goes to a lull, like it's like another harsh reset but like the runs that he does like the runs that he does are pretty insane and not even just to also mention like the the whole time he's like also doing equally crazy stuff on his left hand you know mm-hmm. this is also a little bit um, interestingly like a lot of times now it's like we how you would play piano if you're at like a dinner party is like I'm going to do chords on my left hand and I'm going to do you know the melody or whatever or extensions on my right and I, I don't know enough about classical music to like really say this but it seems like doing like straight chords on your left hand was like not like you would always like like your left hand is like always outlining chords instead of just being like you know straight block chords. Mm-hmm. Obviously until he hits like those big like bum 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 bum. but that's I mean like whenever there's like a minute left in the song, it just kind of goes to this level where it's just like dang. You know,
0: <laughs> yeah he's kinda he kind of hang hangs in suspense on those top notes, yeah and just, then just kind of cascades down,
2: yeah, it's just i don't know again from a from a technical standpoint, it's hard for me to like this is very far above my level of expertise in terms of uh like technical ability on the piano um but i mean it's it's still insane for what for a person to do and and i will also say for someone to ride it is is it especially like the forum form like this not being done before is really impressive because like you see like you know high school kids that have like that are piano prodigies. And like, there are like landmark pieces of music that are written by Beethoven, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and so, I mean, he's writing things that are like benchmarks for even classifying yourself as a, as a good piano player nowadays.
0: Yeah. It's he's, he's made music that, is considered like that you're not good until you know how to play this. Yeah. So, yeah, so this uh, yeah. this piece of music is was not super uh, popular whenever he came out. This was still before he had gained a lot of critical acclaim. That didn't really happen until the turn of the century. But this was a piece of music that kind of got people at least talking and going, hmm, this Beethoven guy, he's interesting. He's not playing by the rules, but he's a he's very talented. Well, we should pay attention and see what he does. Yeah, this
2: is Opus 13.
0: Mm-hmm. This is early. This is early in his career. Like I said, this is the uh, the only thing we'll be looking at from the 1700s in this list. So this is, this is kind of while he's still developing himself. And you could say that that's why it's the most basic sounding song on the set. But kind of like Grant said, maybe in a less brutal way. But, you know, we, we're actually going to be spending quite a bit of time in the set devoted to his piano pieces. And we're not going to return to more orchestral music till the end. And I think that this is a good way to to kind of jump in to the piano pieces. Something that's easy, something that's you know not going to be super um, shocking and appalling as some of the later pieces are going to be. But um, this will be kind of just a way to get our feet wet into his piano pieces, and a way to kind of you know mellow down a little bit from the intensity of the first piece. And so with that, we're going to go ahead and move on to the next song in the set. A very, very famous, one of the most fia- famous piano pieces ever written.
2: Uh, and this is Fear Elise. This goes back to what I was saying about like benchmark piano pieces, like where it's like, you're not, at a certain level until you can play a certain song. And this is like the classical, this is like the classical, like junior high equivalent. Like if you're in junior high and you're taking piano lessons and you can't play for a lease, then it's like, eh,
1: this was the third ever legitimate song. We talked last week about how purple haze was one of the first songs I learned to play with the band this is this is the third legitimate song i'd ever actually learned on piano for a long for a long time it was just like me kind of like jamming in front of the piano and playing whatever i wanted and kind of figuring out music that way but it it started with the entertainer the sheet music for the entertainer and i learned that and then i learned the charlie brown song you know um both of those are like pretty standard. And and then Fur Lease. And it it was really it was so simple and yet it sounded so good and you can be so expressive with it, it, at least for the main theme, that it like it made me feel good about like playing music and it made me feel like I could kind of like control how i wanted the dynamics to go yeah there's a lot of
2: touch in this song
1: yeah it's like from what i understand it's intended to be like a solo piece and there's not really any strong tempo it's very free form and you can kind of like do those trills however you want and i mean there are some sections in the middle there that are pretty intense and you know this being me at like 12 trying to learn it on the piano it kind of wasn't you know conducive to my uh, abilities but nonetheless it was still it was it was fun to learn and it was fun to play and I can still kind of plunk it out every once in a while so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that this song is very good at lending itself to the ideas that we'll see later and the romantic ideas that we've already seen of there being a lot of expression. Um mm-hmm. was being very expressive, we talked about in the first section. And this is like a great example of that expression.
2: I think this also yes. talks like in the same as the pathetique, where like you have kind of your a section theme, which is the na 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 na. And then you have these like kind of like middle sections that are extremely I guess experimental probably for the time where it's like <clears> throat> throat> it's like just like out of nowhere it just speeds up and then right. it kind of like kind of legatos back down or uh, I guess retards back down into um back to the A section and it just kind of uh, it, I'm starting to see, see a theme here
3: Mhm.
0: Yeah, uh I love the way that it resets every time. It yeah. almost in sometimes it almost sounds like it's like a like a like a, a car trying to rev up. Where it's you're you're putting the key in the ignition and it's like that melody is trying to da 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 and then it finally starts it's like the the engine has finally turned on the car's moving. Yeah. Mhm. I like how it's, it's almost like a or like a record that keeps skipping, and you're and you're waiting for it to fix itself, and then finally it goes, and you're just like, okay, now we're going through the the song
3: again. It's yeah. crazy
1: how you're using modern analogies to describe something that was written before both of those things existed.
2: Hmm. Yeah, uh, I was getting was it's it's almost like that na 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 is like it's so slow and so patient and um, then it's almost like the song kind of gets itself carried away and out of control and then it always kind of like it's like once it kind it of almost to it, has
0: to res- it restrains
2: itself yeah it's like it's it's like there's like the na 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 is the restraining force because it's like and
3: then
2: that kind of goes back into it like there's like a that's like the tension and release of the song
3: mm-hmm. we-, we
2: have that on digital
1: record now of you making those noises oh you guys know exactly what i'm talking
2: about
0: that's music you know i
2: do music lingo is just scatting everything yeah i have no shame Yeah, i know what you're talking about and i
1: like how this song is like it's ultimately it's very simple at least for the a section and the fact that like very rarely are both hands playing at the same time it's kind of like the right hand will play a little bit and then the left hand will kind of bring up the rest of the phrase and then the right hand will kind of cut it off a little bit. But they're never really kind of playing at the same time, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost, it's almost like it's a it's a tug of war between the hands and between like the different parts of the piano and the different frequencies. And so it kind of adds more depth where there isn't really that much depth there's not a lot of notes being played at once there's hardly any chords I don't think there's at least any in the- chords in the A section but it sounds very Yeah, I was going to
0: say at least in the A section there's not
1: it sounds very very full and we get some tremolo now, picking a- in the C section yeah wait Now, I'm take that you- out of context
0: I'm going to tell you guys something that's going to blow your minds
1: hmm. okay
0: This, this song was not ever played or discovered during Beethoven's life. Huh. He had, he never played this song for anyone. This was a song that was found 20 years after his death in like, like what you would call like finding it in the vault. Of just unreleased stuff. That he just had lying around. This is on one of his posthumous records. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you'll notice. That's why it doesn't have Opus anywhere in it. Mm.
1: Who is Elise?
0: We don't know. Mm. It's a mystery. There's People have guesses on who it is. But because of the fact again. That it wasn't found till after his death. And it's it's highly likely that that wasn't you know intended to be the name of the song because like I said he dedicates his song all of his songs to people that was the only title they had for it was for Elise who's Elise we don't know Hmm. but I thought that that was very interesting like this is one of his defining pieces as well as one of the defining pieces of piano and he never even got to see it played in his lifetime.
2: Mm. He probably didn't think it was good enough. <laughs> it's possible. Wow. Imagine.
0: It's we we don't like, really know the reason why it got shelved and tucked away.
1: It's kind of but... like um you know how people hate on there, here's my monthly Saint Anger re- reference, but people hate on Saint Anger all the time for being such a bad record. But if somebody else had released that album, it would have been like completely killer and it would have changed the face of music. It's kind of like with this song. It's like, Ethan, you just mentioned, like, he probably didn't think it was good enough, or he probably didn't finish it, or he, he felt like it didn't feel complete or whatever. And so he never ever played it. But to the rest of us, it's, like, it's it's such a big deal that this song existed. And it's weird how, like, it's kind of, like, beauty is the eye of the beholder or, like, the, in the ear of the listener, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah,
0: I just... I think it'd be interesting to know what he would think about this song being one of the endearing piano pieces ever made. I, now, I he actually, holds himself
1: at such a high standard, I'm sure.
0: I don't know whether or not he would have liked that. Because <laughs> he he tends to kind of be grumpy if he thinks that inferior pieces are <laughs> um uh becoming popular, which we'll talk about in more detail when we get to uh, an upcoming piece. He he's, he's very arrogant, and he's just like, you know, if he thinks that he's written better, he's going to tell you about it. Hmm. And so, uh, I, I don't know whether or not he'd be flattered that this throwaway piece has become so endearing or if he would be offended by it (laughs) going really you guys went with this I have all this other brilliant uh, work here and you're obsessing over this piece the one I didn't even think
2: was worthy to see the light of day
0: yeah I I could see him doing that yeah so, yeah yeah but yeah this is definitely one of those pieces that like anyone that has ever taken piano lessons before will like pull out at parties just to like impress people yep my my dad actually does that all the time he barely plays piano but he'll like sit down and play the beginning of fair Elise and it makes you think oh wow you're such a good piano player and then you he can't play anything else yep <laughs>
2: how that's how it goes.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's 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 an interesting legacy. <laughs> but uh I think we can go ahead and move on to the next song. So the next piece in the set is uh movement number three from piano sonata number fourteen, which is one of the most famous piano sonatas ever composed. And that is the Moonlight Sonata.
1: So, this this one in particular is such a big deal. This and the rest of Moonlight Sonata because it's so adaptable to the neoclassical movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's been there's a really there's some really great guitar covers of this movement in general. As fast as it is, I mean, of course, it's like every guitarist who can play like Steve Vai or Michelangelo Badio or whoever is going to try to cover this song. And it's, it's crazy because all that arpeggiation that you hear, it makes the chords sound like they're going all across the piano and all across whatever instrument you're playing. But you're not playing that many notes at a time. And so the chords still feel very full. It also feels very fast. It feels like there's a lot of extensions, but really it's just kind of um, tritone chords. Not tritone. What am I looking for? Triad. Yep. Um, and there's a lot of, like, God chords in here, which is where you go to another major chord that's not even close to being in the key and we'll see a lot of those in um our sixth song too. Uh but it, there's a lot of jumping out of the scale and there's so much experimentation in this song that we didn't have in some of the pre- previous songs.
2: How popular was yes, this song I... while he was alive?
1: Oh, this
0: was this was as far as piano pieces go, this was by far his most famous. So much so that he hated how famous it was. <laughs> People would ask him, uh, "What do you think about the Moonlight Sonata?" He'd go, ah, I've written better." Really? Mm-hmm. He was that cantankerous mm-hmm. about it.
1: I Uh-oh. I would contend with him. No, I wouldn't, because I don't want to make
2: him mad. <laughs> he's rolling in his grave right now as we speak about <laughs> him probably roll
0: over roll over beethoven i <sighs> yeah i went there
1: okay yeah. i i feel like this sonata is like it's both both the movements that we're going to talk about in this episode are among his like most revered pieces for um those who Care even slightly more about Beethoven than the average person because the average person is going to know, you know, the Fifth Symphony and release and, you know, the Ode to Glory or Faith or whatever it is from the Symphony. Ode to Joy. I was close. Ode to Glory. Ode to Glory. Oh, is- no, that's Old Glory. That's the flag, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I. Sometimes it's hard. Ode to Joy, but like people know those melodies. But if you kind of take the the step to look a little bit deeper into into Beethoven, into the well known Beethoven, this is kind of where you get.
0: Yeah, this is the um, the people that really are more serious about listening to classical music. This is like one of the go to pieces right the um, all of the all of the serious musicians like hold the moonlight sonata in very high regard
3: mhm
0: so much so that the beatles made an entire song out of its chord sequence played backwards
1: <laughs> i believe it oh, I, would, so, I would expect nothing less from the beatles to be honest <laughs>
0: But like I said, this is the uh, this is the third movement of the of the sonata. and I think that um, this this movement stands out in it because the first two, the first movement, which we'll get to later, is very, very slow. Second movement is pretty slow as well, not as slow, but still very slow. And then all of a sudden, third final movement, we get this fury of playing probably among the most furious piano playing yes. ever put down. Mm-hmm. Even regardless of the speed that was playing, the intensity, the uh, the darkness underneath all of the notes that are being played. It's um, it's a very it's it really is proto metal. Yep. In the way that it's put together.
1: It's tech death. Yeah, it well it is. I mean, the entire yeah. song is sweep picking, like, and and there are even sections where it's like there's this really ominous like low like octave with a fifth yeah. dominant that's kind of ruling everything, and then there's your melody on top. That's that's kind of it's is very. It's melodic. It's finally a melodic melody. It's not just like sweeping all over the piano. You know?
0: Yeah, when it gets into the
3: (laughs) Well, I mean I mean
1: like the um I think Ethan, you know what I'm talking about. I can't quite remember what the what the melody is, but it sounds very sinister because you have those low notes. But it's not just the low notes. It's there's he he also he's not gonna He's not going to bore you with only one part of the scale in this song. Ever. Mm-hmm. You know, until we get to the to some, I think there are some sections towards the, the middle where he does do that, but it's never on the extreme high notes or extreme low notes. There's always something in the mid-range for your ears to grab onto, you know, and that's
2: that's important when you're writing something like this. I will say this was my favorite song out of the set. Ooh, I uh, I think I might have to
0: agree with you on that. Oh, although, although, um, fifth, fifth symphony movement one is pretty
2: close. I, I have a a close second that we have not gotten to yet. That. That I have been back and forth this whole time on the the what changed my mind at, as you were explaining kind of uh, Beethoven's just philosophy on like experimentalism because it was between this one and um, movement one of Moonlight Sonata and I ended up choosing this one because I feel like this is just a slap in the face to the classical era. Like, not not in a disrespectful way, but, like, romantic era is now, you know? Mm Yep. Like, like, if you think about Moonlight Sonata, the first movie, which we're gonna get to, it's, like, very slow and very melodic. Very, very hook, you know? Mm -hmm. And this is just, like, I'm gonna do whatever I want the, to. And, and this is all. This is almost anti melody. And not to mention that the, the just the sonata as a whole that it goes first movement slow, second movement not as slow, third movement is just blistering. Like that's so weird, you know. To mm-hmm. like that you land the plane with the fast, like. <laughs> crazy movement land the plan I've never heard it that
1: way but we do that a lot of times in music if you like uh, Lucas cites this a lot is Metallica's one in building up very 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 slow and then kind of a little bit of intensity between but there's a very sudden clear change kind of towards the end where things start getting faster and faster and faster and more intense and more intense and more intense. And I think that that's kind of what Moonlight Sonata is. It's like this is Beethoven's one. It's Mm, very interesting. It starts off with the subdued and the melodic and the slow and then it ends with the crazy frenzy and you could not do anything faster. That's just that's my opinion. But you know and another thing that that I did notice in this song that maybe wasn't so clear initially was his use of whether Beethoven wrote this or not but the performer's use of the reverb pedal for the piano and how that can affect the mood of things when, when uh, they're playing those low chords and everything that reverb pedal is on so it sounds very muddy and very like sinister and ominous but when you know you're playing those big arpeggios it starts to sound very staccato but he's got the uh, the reverb pedal off and so every note has its own space and space yeah Yeah. and and they don't they don't eat over each other's
2: sound I would be shocked if there's reverb pedal on the song or any effects initially yeah me too I I I feel like this is just recorded in a big room.
1: Well, uh, no, no, I don't mean like reverb like the effect. You know like the the piano pedals.
2: Oh, like the sustain. The sustain. I call it a reverb pedal.
0: <laughs> can you can you hear the sustain? I was
2: like I was like reverb pedal. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? I did not know what you meant. I have no now. <laughs> you do the the pedal on the pedal. piano
1: that makes the note last longer, yeah
2: all right yeah. I, yes, I okay, agree. I agree with you now. okay
1: <laughs> I didn't mean digital pedals, no um, OMG but right. and so whether Beethoven wrote that or not, I mean it's it's, it's another example of dynamic expression that we take for granted today. Yeah. Um,
0: also, from now that we – I mean we've pretty much gone ahead and given away the fact that we're going to be uh, going to the uh, first movement of the Moonlight Sonata. But knowing that, um, hearing that, that – like how we said that one of the common uh, writing tropes of Beethoven is taking a very simple idea and expounding upon it. Mm-hmm. How we have the the whole spine of the Moonlight Sonata is that pattern of three notes. And even though we're playing very, very fast, you can still hear that melody of three ascending notes climbing. Da 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 Like it's you can hear that it's the the first movement just played at lightning speed.
1: Yeah, pretty much.
0: And originally, whenever I had heard the song, I didn't realize that the two of them were part of the same, because I'd heard them independently of each other. Yeah, I didn't realize that they were part of the same piece. And so I remember thinking, I was just like, huh, this kind of sounds like the, the Moonlight Sonata, not realizing that there was more than one part to it. Mm-hmm. And it kind of blew my mind whenever I realized that Oh, the reason it sounds like that is because it's another part of it. And it's one of those things to where when you kind of when you hear it you almost can't unhear. Now you can hear the the all throughout the piece the different parts of that motif playing with each other. Again, he's taking a very simple idea and he's figured out how to how to expound and stretch it out over three different movements and keep it fresh yeah I think that that's very impressive
3: yeah
1: that 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 is true it's kind of like uh, I was talking Lucas with you about two dream theater songs that sounded the same and I, I had no idea that they were meant to be part of that five movement thing and when I found that out I was like oh well like they did a really good job of both kind of masking the fact that they're related that the two songs are related but once you found out it was clear as day yeah once you hear the motif,
2: yeah. you're just like oh right exactly so yeah and,
0: and kind of in the same way that we were saying that you know the places where classical music has survived has been in orchestral music and it's been in prog music because they're the ones that are you know still using all these ideas of multi-part suites and recapitulation and theme and variation all these things that these devices that these classical composers used they're using them in progressive music right i am find that that's why i love classical music so much is because it's like it reminds me of listening to Prague. yeah which is probably a really strange way to to admit to liking it and probably something
2: that classical music purists would be really hurt hearing me say that i feel like you're gonna you guys will draw like once we get to opera i feel like there's gonna be even more connections because we're actually gonna get to like Thematic elements of songs, like we'll actually have lyrics mm-hmm. and stuff to analyze, and to have musical parts that go with characters. It's gonna. Oh yeah, gonna I, go I already can tell you that I'm.
0: <laughs> I already can tell you that I am becoming more and more of a fan of opera lately. I think that that's some of the most brilliant uses of musical. Theme and variation and leap motifs come I, from there. You,
1: I, I, don't understand you. You listen to Tears for Fears and you two good music,
2: good and now you're podcasts. listening to opera. Good music podcast.
1: It's if, all about if get, good. Uh, if it's good.
2: That. We listen to it. Too. I get that, but like,
1: man, <laughs> this is a lot of music. I mean, it's good, yep. but, like, it's a lot of music. It sure is. But that's the thing is because I – because of this podcast, I'm discovering more music that I like, and I hope that the listeners are too. So – because that's the point of this podcast.
0: hmm Amen, brother. Yep. Um, let's also talk about another thing that we had brought up earlier about his, the way that he structures things, about how you have this central idea that holds everything together, and you have these moments where we go off into these explorational sections. And just like we do, I would say, pr- pretty strongly in the pathétique, which is another reason why I wanted to have that earlier in the set is because it's, a, it's very similar structurally to what's going on here, just much more accessible. Mm-hmm. And now we have something again, where we have like we'll have like this this crashing dark low piano chord rings out, and then, and the whole thing starts again, and we have the goes to the main theme again, and then we have another exploration scene, yeah, and we just we keep returning to it, and um, I really just I love the way that he that he composes like this. It makes for the songs to be very exciting because it's like you don't know where he's gonna go when he's um going into these uh expositional sections where he's exploring the themes, but you kind of are always anticipating the comeback. You know, you know that we're gonna return at some point to the central theme. And you're just kind of wondering, okay, when's it gonna be? And then you hear that that crashing band of and you're just like okay here it comes la, 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 you're just like yes
1: mm. yep well I think we should now officially talk about the first movement of Moonlight Sonata yes so obviously we mentioned before it's more subdued it's slower and i i have to say the first thing i noticed is that with this mix it sounds like it sounds like the intro to like zombie queen you know (laughs) or like a a ghost song or something because it sound it doesn't a and maybe I'm pretty sure that's like the mix and how it was recorded it's been
2: used then that way for a lot of things it sounds so ominous Mm -hmm. the reason why why I almost picked this as my favorite song is because whenever they switch to like because it starts out very minor and the whole song is technically minor but there are times whenever it will like go to like a more major feel you can yes, because I love how, it when it does that because of how slow paced it is. You're almost like waiting for what the next thing is. And whenever they give you the, so the tension and release of this song is very much by where the key, like where, where like, I guess it's not modally, but like whenever it goes to a major instead of a minor, you know, feel that's very much where the tension releases and they milk it a lot, you know? So you're in this they dark, you mean this, he you're in this dark mode and then <laughs> they. And, and then they just turn it on you and just like, oh, this is really nice, it's major and then they'll drag you back down to that minor feel. And that's why this was almost my favorite. Is just they, they the did do that a lot. stuff, it's
1: great. It's they, just, they as one person on the piano did do that very many times.
2: Yes, they did it so much. They,
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're we're not gonna let it go until Ethan acknowledges
1: that. They, <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, but yeah, okay. it's uh, <laughs> the the moments where it switches. The, those are my favorite parts of this piece you just you have these brief moments where it just like it it is beautiful even when it is in the darker um areas but it's just it's this different feeling it's again it's almost like it's because you wouldn't call this dissonant because there's not really anything dissonant happening but there's this there's this push and pull of white and dark yeah and the times when when you're so immersed in this gloomy dreary yet beautiful um section the times when it just briefly switches over it's like this breath of fresh air is just like oh my gosh yes this this sounds so good and then immediately just takes it away from you and you're almost waiting for it to change again mm-hmm. oh give me some of that give me some of that light again
1: It it's, it's like, like a drug it's like yeah it's like being sick and it's like when your headache goes away finally and then it's like it comes back and you can't wait for like you can't wait to be able to go to bed again you know and th- that is kind of the, the feeling that it gets because it's so slow it's so you feel partly asleep it definitely feels like the name Moonlight Sonata fits very well with this particular movement because it feels like it's in the middle of the night there's not much going on there's not much to do so not much is done and And it it does have that feeling of kind of just like you're waiting for that moment of goodness again,
0: yeah, and also if you' if you're listening to this for the first time and you don't know what this is about, there a normal person would expect for there to be like some kind of change, some kind of twist, like you think that it's gonna pick up, especially. Now, if you're listening to this set, I'm sure now at this point you're you're being conditioned to expect there to be twists and turns. And I think at this point, this does fit kind of, I guess, what you would call the normal fifth song, but in a really different way. Because this song, while is a break, especially from the the insanity of... Um, the previous song. There's, there's really still more tension being created. Yeah. There's, there's, there's brief moments of release of tension, but for the most part, in this part of the set, we're still building tension because the tension is not really going to be resolved till we get to our, the final song of the set.
2: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, and it gets very resolved. <laughs> it's as as, as good super as you can ever resolve anything, it, it super it, resolved. It takes a while for
1: it to resolve, but there is there's a wonderful,
2: huge, suspended. Whenever we talk about catharsis moment, this is the pinnacle this is the greatest moment of okay. catharsis I don't, know, I don't know about in the that. history of writing this is the most that song has is the most stereotypical <laughs> catharsis theme I... ever written
1: if we look at the context of his life i would agree so we should go ahead and get into this song because we're already talking about it so lucas can you introduce the full name
0: yes this is symphony number 9 movement 4 wait also known as the ode to joy
1: okay so this you mentioned that this was the fourth movement but it's like 20 mm-hmm. minutes yes so this is this is
0: longer this one movement is longer than many complete symphonies especially of the classical period This is, again, this is the last symphony that Beethoven wrote, one of the last pieces that he wrote in his entire life. And this is him after a lifetime of breaking rules and him just going, screw it. Every rule there is to break, we're going to break it. (laughs) See, Like having – this was the first time the voices were ever used in the symphony. That was like a, a big time no no, and he was just like, "Heck, I'm Beethoven. I can do what I want."
1: <laughs> See, this is why I would boom say voices. This is like Beethoven's octavarium. I would agree with that. Right in the fact that like there's so much significance to like his life. There's a lot of like different theme and variation with the main theme. There's a lot of callback. The, the instrumentation gives off a lot of different moods, and you don't really know quite where you stand emotionally at, at, throughout the whole thing, and you kind of play out these different images in your head when you're listening to it. It's really intense. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's why this is my favorite song. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, Ah yes.
1: I don't know if you would have guessed that, but it took Um... me. It took me listening to everything intensely, Um, and and of course I I took notes for this episode. I'm
0: glad. I'm glad that you listened to everything intensely. Well, but
1: like I took notes for this episode, and and I don't do that for every episode. And I noticed that when I do that for the episodes that I do, I would change my favorite song because I'll notice different things. I'll note, I will pick apart every single section, you know, and and how that feels and what musically is going on and the different vibe it puts off. And there's so many different emotions in this song that, and so many different twists and turns, just densely packed with twists and turns that I wouldn't have noticed had I had my brain off. And if I had not... Super intensely looked at all these songs. I probably would have also picked the third movement of Moonlight Sonata as my favorite. But having really closely examined this song and trying to pick it apart, there's so much to pick apart. So we should go ahead and start doing that. But I'm, yes, I'm there's not
0: this. As uh as Ethan pointed out, this is a twenty. Minute song, or maybe Grant, you said it. I can't
1: remember. Either one doesn't um,
0: Yeah, this is this is longer than many full symphonies, and this is just the fourth movement. But you could almost say that this is almost this is like where his entire career was leading up to, mm-hmm. and and when you know that this is like his final work that at this point he was pretty much completely deaf and um, to come out with something so profound and so legendary and something that has endured in the way that um, this piece has. I think that it just adds more and more to the stature of the song. Mm-hmm. I think that this is this this truly is like his great achievement. Yeah.
3: Do you For, think that he even would if agree he, with
0: you that this is his greatest achievement? I think that he would. Because of the fact that something so um, inherently controversial would become and this was an immediate success just showing that now at this point you know kind of everyone was on the same page as him as far as you know we are now in a new age
3: Mm -hmm. so do you think that this was mm -hmm.
2: what concretely cemented the romantic like if if the romantic no i would i would say
0: that it was already well underway at this point but I would say at this point now, it wasn't just Beethoven being crazy over here, doing all this stuff, but now his contemporaries were starting to follow his lead. And so I think was that it was becoming...
2: Cementing himself in history as as the... Like the victor of, of the creation yeah. of the entire genre, pretty much. I believe so, yes.
0: He... Um... Because this came out in eighteen twenty eight and he i want to say he died in eighteen thirty
3: two
0: mm. so you know this was this was definitely for sure it was the last symphony I would have to double check if it was the last composition at all that he made or if he had released some a couple of smaller things afterward, but definitely the last symphony and um yeah his hearing is pretty
2: much shot gone at this point which is insane because yeah again this is why i say that this is the most this is the most cathartic this is the most stereotypical cathartic song I think ever written. Mm-hmm. it's the, the, just the that's one of the most, it's, it's one of the most legendary melodies in every, ever conceived in, by man in every like every crappy Disney Channel original series movie whenever crap is hitting the fan <laughs> yes. yes
1: it is because it was so ironic
2: yeah it's ironic because it's so stereotypically the song for good things happening you know and so for comedic value it's so popular that now whenever bad things are happening that this is happening that's what makes it funny
1: and and you know the music theory reason behind why it sounds so triumphant Oh, why Why don't you enlighten us? So we talked in our Iron Maiden episode about how um, Bruce Dickinson would sing at the um, dominant fifth above the root note. And it would sound kind of like epic and operatic. This melody, the high note, is the fifth note. Yes. and So it'll start on the major third. Three, three, then...
2: four, five, five, right. four, three, and, two, one. And
1: that three, four change is also a lot of like... It's major suspension, and so it's a lot of triumphant <laughs> yeah. suspension. And of course, that five is always triumphant. And ending on the one is an, another great triumphant thing. And so it also kind it all kind of comes together to make the stereotypical triumphant um, melody that if somebody were to try to like make a smoothie, of wonderful goodness of like great things happening they would use all of those elements and he did and so
2: that's why it sounds like that so lucas what all rules was he breaking from like what like because he pretty much he said that he abandoned every rule from the classical music playbook to do this yeah what are all of those do you know all the rules that he broke
0: Well, I know some of them. I mean, one of the big, big ones is having vocal uh, in your symphony. That's kind
2: of surprising considering that, like, we're kind of coming in our history of music, like, we're about to get to where, like, it's chanting. Like, it's people singing. And that we get to a point later where that's, like, not a thing.
0: Well, it's not to say that It's just that vocals were not in symphonies. Obviously, opera was big at this point. You had um, uh, oratorios, which were big. Like If you were going to do the equivalent of the large orchestra plus big voices, that would be called an oratorio. Think of uh, Handel's Messiah. That would be an example of orchestra plus vocals. But having some that is the rules of the symphony and the symphony structure having vocals in that um had never been done before because symphony by its nature and definition was an all instrumental piece and so um and not only is there um vocals in the symphony but they don't there are no vocals in it until the fourth movement it's not even like uh you know there's you're you're used to it by the time you get to the fourth it's literally out of nowhere that
1: that makes a lot of sense because you i mean when you first listen to this song all the way through When the vocals come in, it's a surprise. Like, the rest of the symphony, the rest of the orchestra will cut out. And it's just that... I think it's a male solo voice that introduces everything. And he Mm -hmm. sings a whole melody before the orchestra even comes in. And so I can imagine, like, being in the audience and hearing that for the first time, like, being completely shocked. Like, oh, my gosh, he just did that.
0: Yeah, like, I can... Because I mean, I because you gotta wonder, you gotta know what's coming because there's all these singers standing on stage. I'm sure, but for three movements, they're standing there doing nothing. You gotta be thinking, what what's happening? What's (laughs) what? What is he gonna do? And then you know, finally, we get to the fourth movement, and because this symphony by itself is like an almost like an hour long. It's massive. (laughs) this i mean no that's another rule thing about of making a symphony so gosh dang long um, and yeah you're just you're just looking and going okay what what's going on with all these guys standing here and then finally the voice comes in you're just like oh okay this is happening mhm <laughs> yeah i can't imagine at all what it must have been like to be in that audience and and be going this this doesn't happen. what's happening
1: One of the things I will say <laughs> that it's it's very off putting to us today to listen to vocals that are performed like this mm-hmm. but having our discussion about like especially in the first section about like Beethoven being very expressive and trying to break a lot of rules. Even though this was kind of like the way that operatic singing is, it's still like the voices are not there to sound on perfect pitch. they're there to express some kind of emotion. Mm-hmm. And so looking at it from that perspective, the voices start to make a little bit more sense with that wild vibrato and you can't quite a, you can't quite tell what note they're singing
0: well I and mean, then you know the reason why uh vocalists sang like that back then it wasn't just because people preferred voices to sound like that it was yeah. because of the fact that there was no microphones back then
3: oh that's true too and
0: that's and that's the way that you actually could hear them you had to um
2: like scream your that voice was,
0: yeah, because you have a you have an entire orchestra playing behind you. Especially, if you think of an opera. Um, you've got a whole orchestra playing, as well as usually more than one um, uh, singer singing. And so it's you know, if you've got this giant hall and you're just singing like people would sing today, you there's no possible way you'll be heard and so the that technique is is absolutely essential for even being heard, and that's why they sound like that. It's not just because old people like the way that that sounds now of course, because that was pretty much the only way they ever heard people sing. they got used to it but that there there's a very particular and it's also you know. If opera singers were to sing like that in today's auditorium, you wouldn't hear them because the architecture does not support natural sound. It's meant to support amplified sound. And so the the way that the, the opera houses and the theaters were constructed were to give as much resonance and uh, noise bouncing and reverberation as possible. So that's that's the reason why the voices sound like that. And, but yes, and also when you sing like that, you're able to convey a lot of emotion. So let's talk about what they're actually saying.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Please. The first
2: one with lyrics. That didn't even it didn't even register to me that this would be about which be. I think.
0: Again, in the same way that his Ninth Symphony goes until the final movement to include vocals and the surprise that that must have, for anyone that's listening to this set and is not familiar with this piece, I'm sure they're going to be equally as taken by surprise by the vocals all of a sudden just cutting in. Mm. So if you see that the same thing is happening here. Mm-hmm. Art- artificial recreation, yeah.
2: if you will. <laughs> Alright, so what's what's this song about?
0: So, ger- so um, Beethoven did not write the words to this. This is a pre-existing poem called The Ode to Joy by Friedrich Schiller. Hmm. I mean, he, he adds a couple of words here and there just to give it a little more like the 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 very intro part when the when the voice sings by itself. Um, Beethoven wrote that part. But then right when it goes into the the Freider und that's that's been written before. And obviously it's in German.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So um, pretty much it's just about um the men coming together, um, creating a better tomorrow. Uh, all men shall become brothers wherever your gentle wings hover. Um, every creature drinks in joy at nature's breast. Good and evil alike follow her trail of roses. Even the worm was given desire and the cherub stands before God. We embraced you millions. The kisses for the whole world. Uh brothers above the canopy of stars must dwell a loving father. Like pretty much it's just a um like it's a it's a song of togetherness, of of happiness, almost like a like a paradise where there's no evil left in the world and the entire world lives in peace. Oh my god. Like it's like
2: a we are the world. Yeah when it's, you said uh, the word
1: paradise that's exactly that's exactly it that's exactly the vibe that i got from a lot of the sections that's crazy i've i had i didn't write down that word but like the the adjectives that i was using all point to that like a lot of like like to, towards the end like it is i said like the strings harken to a final frenzy of instruments the choir and the full orchestra together chasing each other across fields and forests and down hills in a happy and innocent manner right that's just that wasn't meant to be poetic that's literally just what it felt like but that's crazy because it's like
2: that's exactly what it is oh my, oh my gosh.
1: gosh and that's such a really great way to like end the set and end his career yeah. as a musician to have something like this, like lyrically. This is another yeah, I, moment. This is
0: because something of Beethoven is that he, a lot of the reason why he um, felt so disenfranchised by the world around him was that. He wanted man to live in this kind of uh, place. This, this place free of war, free of corruption, free of all of the things that that destroy man. And this is almost kind of like his song about like the perfect world that we could be in. And he had a pattern in his life of believing that certain world leaders and certain um, authoritative figures were going to finally be the ones to make it happen. And each time when they didn't, his cynicism increased
3: mm-hmm.
0: until he learned to not trust anyone.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And so um, this, this is kind of like his, you know, his, his, grand statement. Now of course again he didn't write the words but you can see how those words inspired him to make the piece of music that he did.
3: Mhm. Yeah.
0: So that's 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 where that's coming from.
1: This is crazy. It's like all coming together all at one time. The elements are coming
0: together, sir. <laughs> oh, man. So, so yeah, going back into uh, rule-breaking. Another thing that was a big deal about the song was the fact that it literally followed no classical structure at all. Mm. It pretty much just kind of jumps around wherever it wants. Every time you think you've got a handle on where the song's going, it changes. Mm-hmm. And every time you think that the song is reaching its conclusion, it's got another section.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: Hence, <laughs> hence why uh, it's you know over twenty minutes in length.
1: Part of but... part of part of these sections kind of remind me of like the the uh, Devin Townsend's recent album, and the fact oh that, um, like, yeah, in the fact that like it's the choir like is kind of used as like an accent in some places, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of like sci-fi esque stuff with the with the woodwinds and the brass, like we talked about with the fifth, and there's a lot of like. Super, super weirdness going on that's still like weird for today, you know anyway, you're gonna say something.
0: <laughs> I was gonna ask if you were talking about singularity
1: i i meant I meant specifically um, just the whole album really
3: yeah, uh, yeah, yeah,
1: but the the intro section of uh this song that we're talking about now kind of reminds me of why.
3: Okay. And, yeah,
1: and kind of requiem as as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously uh, requiem because that's the that's the choral song in that album. But, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah,
0: I get what you mean. But yeah, uh, singularity definitely has some very um, exploratory pieces inside and... of it.
1: And Singularity treats its main theme the same way in the fact that it introduces it in the early sections, and then it doesn't really touch it until the very end. And that's kind of the way that that uh, Ode to Joy is, but there is that, that long section in the middle where they go over and over and over and over again,
3: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and they barely touch it at the end.
0: But just, just enough to kind of,
1: just enough, because you know,
0: you, you're, because you're, you know, your brain is still thinking we've got to return to the theme one more time for this, for a big finale.
1: Right. So I was waiting for it. And, and when I first listened to this song, I was like, oh, this sounds like we're getting towards the end. And so I look at the time and it's like, we have two minutes left. And I was like, I was expecting like the huge, like giant triumphant, like over and over and over again. And we really didn't get that until the like the last moment possible.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And it, it, it it kind of it jumps in right, yeah, at the last possible moment we get it the big
1: triumphant. It made you wait, and I think that that's the sign of a good song in that you know what to expect, but you don't quite know when to expect it. They keep and, you. Mm-hmm. Want- they keep you waiting so- for more. And so it's making... Yeah, you're waiting for more, and it's making you listen intently. That's that's what I mean. It's the sign of a good song. It's making you listen. I tend to listen to music that kind of forces you to pay attention. And so I really appreciate it when songs that are outside of the genres that I usually listen to do that. So... Yeah. Well...
2: um Ethan, you got anything else you want to add? Nope, I think that's pretty much sums it up perfectly.
1: I mean, all I have right. I have, a, I have a lot of stuff. We could we could go on for days about the music theory in here. We got God chords. We have different time signatures, but I think that ultimately, people need to listen to this song for themselves. They need to listen to all these songs for themselves. We do have the Spotify link in the description of the episode so it makes no sense for you guys to listen to us talk about this for like what three close to three hours now maybe I don't know Um, and then not listen to the song so definitely you want to go do that oh yeah
0: All right. well then we'll take another break and when we come back we're going to talk about our final thoughts so stay tuned we'll be right back
2: Hey what's up everybody it's Ethan Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast We just got done analyzing our six songs From the Spotify playlist From Beethoven which was Symphony Number no. 5 Movement 1 The Pathetique Fur Elise Moonlight Sonata Movement 3 Moonlight Sonata Movement 1 And finally Ode to Joy Announce Time For our last segment Final thoughts So Grant after listening to the song's uh what are your final thoughts um most of the
1: okay well i wouldn't say most actually i would say most most of the songs in this set i've heard before and half of them i've heard all the way through before and that's really something that i didn't expect after lucas and said we were going to do a beethoven episode i expected like a lot of these songs to be something that I had no idea what they would have even sounded like or anything. But it's really surprising to know how much music actually is Beethoven kind of be reminded of that fact. Even though I knew it, I just wasn't aware of the fact that I knew as much Beethoven music as I did. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's really like we talked about this in the first section that it's it's really uh, interesting it uh, what's the word I'm looking for it kind of demonstrates how much of an influence he was over music that today we can even know even, even if we don't know it's Beethoven songs but know the melodies that he wrote that they've lasted for 200 years almost 200 years now for some of them and it's really great to hear how he was like busting the mold whereas like everybody's trying to do that today everybody's trying to be the next like rebel against like the music establishment and like how music is and that he was the one to kind of like start that that's like fantastic because we've gotten some we've gotten some bad music but we've gotten some great music from doing that, from trying something new and trying to do something that people wouldn't expect and trying to play with dynamics and play with people's heads and mix and match different things. And of course, God chords, which we didn't even talk about. And, and <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just, there's a lot to unpack with this final thoughts section I think because he's so he's so far back in our understanding of history and yet very recent recent in a cosmic sense that he's in that sweet spot to have so much influence and it's it's really hard to to come up with one final thought but I think that I think that you can can have multiple final thoughts I mean I think that is well I like to kind of keep it to one but but I think my my ultimate final thought is the fact that he is an important composer and we talk about a lot of influential bands here that maybe aren't like mainstream or anything or maybe they aren't like objectively good or but they're still very influential um, and I'm not going to Point out any because I don't want to offend Lucas, but I would argue that like Beethoven is is objectively good. Like he has objectively good um, technique and skill level, and also composition level. But he's also influential after centuries, and I think that's the that's the takeaways that he's one of those once in a million years kind of people kind of like the Beatles even though they were only like 150 years later he's one of those few and far between people that we really should pay attention to and maybe listen a little bit more to so I'm probably going to go listen to you know Moonlight's not all the way through because I've never actually heard the second part so that is mm. that, that was kind of a chaotic final thought because <laughs> there's a lot but
2: We'll just leave it at that. Yeah. I think, I think to me, it's important. I, the more we do the podcast, the more important I realize it is for me to have context on where the artist was and where the music was at the time for me to truly appreciate it. Because it's one thing to look at it. Um, and I, and I 1 million percent agree with. Uh, grant and how influential he was musically and and to take it and and just what he was doing at the time but it like cements it for me when you realize that like he was the driving force behind like challenging where music was at the time and it make because a lot of people would put chopin and and bach and Beethoven and Mozart and like all all the like classical just gets dumped into the same, you know, it's like the orchestral time period, you know? And there was an orchestral time period, but like each version of that time period had really rigid things about it that made it that time period. So to listen with a new ear to be like, okay, Beethoven was um, was cutting edge like in a weird kind of like he was again anti-establishment whatever you want to call it he was like I don't like that how boxed in it is there's a lot more that we could be doing and to see him like win you know especially like Ode to Joy being the almost like the victory battle cry for for his entire musical Uh, mark on the world kind of seeing it through that lens it makes me appreciate Beethoven uh, obviously more as a um, musical genius but also like kind of that this the spirit of Beethoven Um, that's that is my that's what really stood out to me and that's what makes me appreciate him even more
0: can we start a band called The Spirit of
2: Beethoven? Yes, we can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord.
0: Maybe. Um, so, my journey through classical music has been going on a little bit longer. It started probably about like, oh, four or five years ago, but doing research for this episode and really I I had started to become familiar with the music of Beethoven but it was so interesting and I'm finding that this is starting to become one of my favorite parts of doing research for any artist is getting to know them as a person and seeing how much of that person really brought what the what the music was and um, just seeing his, his highs and his lows and, and seeing what his music meant to him and how him striving for what he wanted and what he was trying to achieve literally changed not just music, but the world, the entire world was impacted by what he did and very few people can say that they changed the world with their music and he is definitely one of them I mean um, the symphony number no. five is the only music right now that is in space on a satellite looking for alien life <laughs> that's the music that they chose to represent earth music Beethoven got that privilege and so um, to just hear everything that he has impacted in modern music and um, it's just it's really fun to get to kind of now peel back this part of uh, of music to kind of start to really Analyze what's going on here. What's, you know, the what's going on? What's what were the forms? What were the rules? And seeing how these important composers broke that rules or in some cases mastered the rules. I think that they're both interesting to kind of see, you know, where the paths lead them. And I'm very, very excited to continue. To unlock this time period, especially, you know, we'll get to go in really deep detail in the history of music section, but this is not going to be the last time that we spend um, an entire episode on a composer. I think that these are going to make for some very fun episodes and for some very enlightening um, lessons on just kind of the nature of music and why we have the music that we have today all right. so with, with that thank you everyone for listening to this episode we hope that you enjoyed it we hope that you liked uh, us talking about something a little bit different than the, all the modern music that we normally do and if you did enjoy it please make sure to hit the subscribe button and um, we've got new episodes every Monday morning, 9 a.m. Central. Next week, we are jumping back into the modern world. It is time for us to look at another heavy metal group. And I'm really excited about this because this is a episode I've been planning to do for a very long time. And I'm finally now feel like it's the right time to do it. I know that... Uh, grant is very excited about it we're going to be talking to we're going to be talking about pantera next week so make sure that you guys (laughs) uh make sure you guys tune in to hear us um, on that episode uh check us out on social media we're on facebook and instagram and leave us a comment let us know what artists you want us to talk about in the future and with that i'm lucas I'm Grant. Let me some Keep on listening to good music.